Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for helping us out with this podcast. They provide the equipment. They provide the real estate. They let us record there. We absolutely love working with them. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. We're on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about anywhere that you can find podcasts. And when you do that, be sure to rate and review us. It really helps other people find this podcast, and we would really appreciate it. If you have any feedback, be sure to send it to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. This week, 16th Congressional District candidate, Republican Anthony Gonzalez. Anthony might be a little more well-known to some of the listeners. I'm I'm assuming that we might have some new listeners who are actually just tuning in because he's also a former Ohio State football star. Yeah, welcome. Enjoy, guys, uh, politics. Mary, you're a big football fan, right? Sports. Yeah, good good analysis. (laughs) Sports. So I will warn everyone that there is going to be probably a good, what, solid 20 minutes of football talk uh, at the beginning of this podcast. So if you're just here for the politics, then go ahead and... uh, Maybe, maybe go ahead about 30 minutes into this thing, and that's when we start getting into it. But uh, we did have a really interesting discussion with him. He's got some insight into both the NCAA and the NFL that we thought would be good to uh, you know, talk with him about his background, talked about kneeling and uh, um, you know, some of the issues that are plaguing the NFL and the NCAA today, like concussions. So football is a sport where they use a ball, and they, it's sometimes called a pigskin, and they throw the ball down a field with little numbers labeled on it. So like 10, 20, and that actually means yards. And so then they run and tackle each other. Like literally they jump on each other. And oh, fun fact, the clock stops all of the time. So a quarter is technically 15 minutes, but it's actually an eternity. I think you missed your calling as a sports broadcaster. Yeah, so we obviously talked about football, but we wanted to bring uh, Anthony on in particular just because uh, he's somebody who is running for office as a former football player. He's got like the celebrity. It's like the elevator speech version about what you say. People ask me, what do you do for a living? I say, I cover politics. Like, oh, who's running for office? I'm like, well, have you ever heard of Anthony Gonzalez? You know, so it's just like an easy sort of tie in. But uh, he's somebody also who just because he's a first time candidate doesn't really have a record he uh there's sort of like some some mystery about him i guess you would say just because you know a lot of these other people that we bring on i mean we had congressman bill johnson on recently and he's a guy where we don't have to ask him like what's your political philosophy because he's you know expressed he's his very much political there, yeah. philosophy for years you know in public so so having him on is is good to kind of like get to know him as a person kind of you know get a feel for how he thinks and that's kind of what we try to do on here and so i feel like it was a good opportunity for that with that let's get to the interview with anthony gonzalez Anthony, thank you so much for joining us here on Ohio Matters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you're from Northeast Ohio. You're running for Congress in the 16th District, and you're originally from Avon Lake, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes, sir. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Avon Lake? Yeah. I mean, I I had a um, a great, wonderful American childhood. I was fortunate to to grow up um, in a great, loving home. Uh, We had a a lot of family in the area. My father started his steel business uh, in 1983, the year before I was born. And uh, it was kind of your classic family business. Everybody at some point or another has worked in that business. Um, and so we always had different people living with us and whatnot, whether it was kind of cousins who needed some work or uncles or aunts or, or what have you. Um, and so I, I grew up uh, in what I always consider to be a, a just giant loving family. Uh, my mother's family was, was down in uh, Cincinnati and uh, we always did our kind of 
annual trips here and there. So um, just got a great flavor of Ohio uh, and certainly Northeast Ohio um, growing up there. And, uh, you know, my, my childhood was a lot of it was dictated by two things, really. Uh, one was obviously school. Uh, we had a, a pretty big focus on academics in our house. Um, and then also sports. Uh, I was just a sports nut. I, I would play any and every sport uh, that you know was known to man. I, I always say, my I don't know how my mother did this. Now that now that I'm a parent and I see how <laughs> how hard it is to juggle different schedules. But um, I mean, I would be on every season. I'd be on at least three different teams. So I'd be on you know two baseball teams and a track team in the spring. I'd be on a basketball team and two indoor soccer teams. I'd be on a football team and, and, a, and a soccer team or whatever it is. And, and so, um, you know, doing that, I think you just get a good flavor because uh, you're certainly traveling around um, around the area. Uh, you get a good flavor for the area and, and growing up and it was just the, the best place to be. I just can't imagine uh, having a better childhood. I really can't. Where'd that love of sport sort of come from? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, my father was an athlete. He and we loved sports, right? Like I, one of my first sports memories, unfortunately, and you know, this is kind of part of the curse of being a, a Cleveland fan is, is the Ernest Biner fumble. I remember us being in my grandfather's um, little den area and we thought we were going to the Super Bowl and, and uh, the disappointment and how angry everybody was, um, it, you know, just kind of turned the mood. I was, my, my grandfather had a dog, a big mastiff named Bruno and I was sitting there with Bruno as a little kid. Bruno was way bigger than me. I mean, I remember him barking and screaming and yelling and everybody was just, you know, going nuts. And so um, that's kind of my first memory. And it gives you a sense of, of kind of how our family operated, I guess. That was, these were seminal moments where we all came together on Sundays and Saturdays to watch, um, to watch college and, and pro football. Um, and then basketball was kind of just something I picked up. I don't know, I don't know why necessarily, but um, but just always loved it and, and always loved watching it, playing it, um, and, and thinking and reading about it as well. So so eventually you went on to become a football star at St. Ignatius here in Cleveland, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have a favorite rival that you loved playing while you were at St. Ignatius? Yeah, I mean, the, the obvious answer is, is St. Ed's, I think. Um, and, and those were great games and those were fun games. But um, the truth is, they, I think we had a lot of great rivals um when i was there i mean the Kent mckinley games were always good warren harding maurice claret was there my junior year um they were incredible he had just i think he had just run for like 400 yards against st ed's the week before we played them uh we held him to like a buck 85 and we thought we really did something um and <laughs> ended up ended up winning the game but um those were great games the following year they beat us in my senior year um in the first round of the playoffs so um i just th- those rivalries um are, are intense and they're fun. And I always say there's, you know, I've been fortunate to play with people from all over the country, right. Who've had a lot of different high school football experiences. And there really is nothing like high school football in, in the state of Ohio. There is no other state that has what we have. And Kent McKinley plays at like basically what's a professional stadium and like right. St. Ignatius is nicer than my college, you know? Like. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And the fans are, um, unbelievably knowledgeable obviously and and we love football right I mean there's a reason why the Pro Football Hall of Fame is where it is Um, and so uh, you know I I always consider Ohio to just be the if you're going to play football uh, in high school football there's there's no better place. Can you walk me through what it's like when did you start being recruited? Uh, I would say junior year was kind of where between sophomore and junior year and then it picked up in my junior season. Is that when you kind of realized, hey, maybe I can make something out of this when people are starting to say, hey, why don't you come play for us? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I always took sort of a pragmatic approach to it. I knew that if I had a certain speed, if I were fast enough, I could probably play. It was just a matter of developing skills at that point. Um, because I, the way I've always thought about it, the skills for football don't change whether you're the skills and the fundamentals don't change whether you're playing peewee football high school football college or pro um, what changes is the speed and size of the players uh, and so if you're fast enough or you are big enough you can apply those fundamentals at any level of football provided you have uh, certain measurables in place and i knew that i just by my 40 time and my 100 meter dash time that um, football was an option for me i just had to get i had to get my fundamentals down um, and so that uh, I really put a, a strong emphasis on between sophomore and junior year um, and then was fortunate enough to, to get some scholarships um, coming out of that junior season. So as most of our listeners know, you're probably most famous for being an Ohio State wide receiver. Uh, one thing that we found out while we were doing research for this is that you were a philosophy major in college. Uh, that's not a really, it doesn't seem like a very typical, you know, uh, college football player major. Why did you pick philosophy? Yeah, you know, it was, it's interesting. I, they tried to talk me out of it, actually. Um, they just said, hey, you know, are you sure you really want to do this? Uh, we've never had a, a football player major um, in philosophy. Uh, I happen to love it for a variety of reasons. Um, one, you know, my freshman year, I took all the different classes in gen ed and, and that the thinking that you go through and the way you process arguments and construct arguments uh, that's required in philosophy, I just found really appealing uh, for, for a variety of reasons. I think if nothing else, it teaches you how to think and how to structure arguments um, and how to be logical. And, and so I loved that. I was attracted to that. Uh, beyond that, my, one of my heroes growing up was my grandfather. Um, my grandfather immigrated here from Cuba, uh, kind of had to escape the Castro regime. He was an attorney in Cuba uh, working for peaceful reforms before their side got defeated and they had to leave. But um, in any event, he was one of my heroes and somebody who in large part raised me while my dad was building his business. And he always said, if you're going to be an attorney, and I wanted to be, I wanted to be a judge, actually. That was my, my dream. I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. I thought that would be the, the coolest job in the world. I still think it probably is. But uh, in any event, um, so he always said, to be an attorney, you should be a philosophy major and an English major and uh, to double major. Uh, I ultimately just did philosophy. I, I was doing football as well, and I thought the only way I can fully commit myself to both athletics and academics um, is if I just take the one major, and, um, and I just loved uh, the, the philosophy side. So you're running as a Republican, and I don't know if you remember, there were a couple of instances during some debates in 2016 where uh, you had like Carly Fiorina sort of poking fun at philosophy majors and Oh, you know, what are you going to do with a philosophy degree? I'm wondering what you kind of think about that. Love of knowledge? What can't you do with that? <laughs> <laughs> You're not the first person to say that. I actually, uh, I had somebody at a, a donor event when I was an Ohio State uh, player who said, said the same thing, philosophy. What are you going to do with a philosophy? I said, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's, so, who's your favorite philosopher? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Plato guy. Not necessarily because I agree with everything, but... Um, but because I appreciate the thinking and I just, I don't know, I, I, like, I like the classics. We'd be remiss if we didn't ask you some sort of insider stuff on, you know, the NCAA while you're here. Uh, and I'm curious, do you think that the NCAA does a good job of preparing athletes for life after, you know, football or athletics in general? I think so. I mean, a lot of that is on, you know, there's a bunch of directions you can go on that, right? I, I think you have to have a realistic understanding of, 
of who the folks are coming in and, and what their backgrounds are and, and uh, what's been emphasized, um, you know, to that point. And so you have to kind of hit people uh, where they are, right? The, the program um, for somebody who went to St. Ignatius is probably different from a program from somebody who, who maybe didn't go to as, as you know, um, great a school for whatever reason. Uh, and so I think you, you kind of have this situation where you have to collect all these people from all these different backgrounds and you have to come up with programs um, that work well for everybody. And uh, just knowing how, right, I have one experience, which is an Ohio State experience, knowing how my former teammates have ultimately transitioned out, out of college and into the working world, whether that's to the NFL or otherwise, um, I think Ohio State did a phenomenal job, uh, just an, an incredible job. And I know in many ways, uh, Urban Meyer has has doubled down on that. He has something called Real Life Wednesdays, um, which I think is an amazing program where they bring people from industry, from every industry, right? They'll have um, they'll have some reporters in um, from ESPN or whatnot, and they'll have you know some bankers from Goldman Sachs and and everything kind of in between, just showing guys, hey, these are the careers that are available in this world, um, and we have the tools at Ohio State to help you get there. Um, and you know, that's, that's ultimately what guys need because what I always say is people, I think a lot of people have what I would call an awareness gap, which is they don't even know what's out there. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard to go from A to B, uh, if you don't even know what B is right. And so if everything you've seen your whole life is a particular path, um, through your community, and then, you know, we bring you into Ohio state and we can broaden your horizons and we can show you opportunity and then provide that path. And that's any college. I'm using Ohio State as the example, obviously. But um, if we can do that, then I think we can really change lives. And um, and I, I believe that that, that is happening. Um, again, my, my experience is Ohio is the Ohio State experience, which um, you know I, I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. But uh, from my eyes, uh, I think the NCAA uh, or Ohio State specifically, I should say, um, does do a, a phenomenal job. Do you think the NCAA should pay its players? You know, I think when I was in college, I always I said yes. Um, here's kind of my assessment of it. Uh, I think that we should be in a place where we allow athletes to capitalize on their star power in some form or fashion. Now, do I think the best thing in the world is for, you know, an 18-year-old kid to, to have a million dollars? No. And, and I don't think that's what would happen if, if we relax some of these rules. Um, but if there were a way for, to allow players to kind of, even if it's, it's something as simple as doing a football camp, right. Or a swimming camp. My, my wife was a uh, Stanford swimmer and she could have done swim camps, right. And, and taught lessons and it could have helped her pay for, you know, food and whatnot. Um, and, uh, you know, you could do that across, across all the different sports. Um, where if you just relax these rules a little bit, um, some of the athletes can can make a little bit of extra money. Uh, most of uh, many of which come from very poor communities and poor families, um, where that money means a whole heck of a lot. And um, and I personally would would like to see something like that, where you you relax those rules um, and allow folks to to do something along those lines. So you were a first round pick in two thousand seven. Went to the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, I believe thirty two overall. Yeah. All right. <laughs> You had a you had a pretty promising start to your career, but you know injuries obviously cut down your time. And I, I'm kind of curious what goes through the mind of an athlete when uh, injuries kind of cut down their career. It, it seems like one of the only professions where 
you know, very publicly, a single injury can kind of just take you out of the game. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was devastating to be honest, right? I mean, I my dream my whole life was to be a professional football player, um, and then to be picked in the first round. You know, all I wanted was to be a success. The last thing you want to be is the quote unquote first round bust, right? I mean, that's the that's not the label you want. That's not what you grow up thinking about. Um, and my first two years, I, I think went fine. Uh, they weren't, you know, I didn't go to a Pro Bowl or anything, but um, but I think they went well. Uh, and then to have the final three. Um, taken from me primarily due to injury, especially kind of the middle two, um, was was incredibly disappointing. I mean, it, it um, you know that th- that was probably that was probably like the most unhappy or the most disappointed or depressed or whatever you want to say that I've ever been was going through those seasons because all you want to do is be healthy. That's it. Um, more than anything in the world and and you would do anything for it you know within the rules and and to not be able to do that and to not be able to turn the corner you know it was it was the first thing that I've ever set my mind to where I I usually just develop plans and I work my plan and that's kind of how I I try to plot my way through life um, where that just didn't work it just completely broke down no matter what I did it just I just kept coming up short Uh, you know I didn't didn't always uh, know how to handle that and um and so, you know, once it was time to transition out, uh, thank God I had a, a kind of a backup plan, if you will, which was was to go uh, continue my education. But um, but at the time, uh, it was it, mentally and emotionally, it was uh, incredibly difficult. I was going to ask, did you always have that backup plan or was that something that kind of just no, came up? No, that came up after my third season, um, which was a season where I was injured the entire year, um, you know, for background. We had just let go of Marvin Harrison, who's a Hall of Fame wide receiver. Uh, I was tapped to take his position, right? Nothing better. You're going to be on the right side. We were a right-left team. Um, you're going to be on the right side. Peyton Manning's going to be your quarterback. You know, this is this is a career that's moving in the right direction by all accounts. Um, and then for that to kind of happen so quickly um, was tough. And then in that offseason, I went to a program at, um, at Harvard Business School through the NFL. It was a week-long program kind of an entrepreneurship program that their business school put on for the players and I remember I called my mom after the second day and I just said I think I know what I'm going to do when I'm when I'm done playing uh, I had always wanted to go to law school but um, when I started really looking at it and and seeing um, kind of what the average age was of a student going into business school what the outcomes were coming out um, and kind of where you could could move in life I thought um, you know this is this is a great path and I enjoyed it right it was it was kind of applied philosophy uh, how do you think how do you structure arguments how do you think your way through problems um, and then apply them to a business situation so I just I loved the, I just loved the activity and so that was kind of where I when I started doing things like studying for the GMAT and things like that so you mentioned that was a program that was through the NFL yes do you feel like the NFL prepares players well for life after football you know you always hear the stories of guys who you know had millions but went broke because they were buying the newest Hummer or whatever or something like that so do you Hummer, think the, that's a that's a throwback yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, dating, you're that, dating yourself yeah I'm thinking that's... of the ESPN documentary that came out the guy <laughs> yeah. saw like the new Hummer was on the lot and he had to go buy it right after he got cut of course but, um yeah do you think the NFL does a good job of preparing its players for life after football you know, it, it can always be better, right? Um, and it's easy to to pick out the kind of the bad anecdotes. Um, I think if there's one place the NFL can do a much better job, it's it's kind of health and safety issues coming out of the NFL. 
and you know all that's collectively bargained for obviously um there's there's no 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 gifts there but um in any event so i think that's a place um but on the transition side here's kind of my read on what happens when a player leaves the nfl uh and and this may happen in all pro, pro sports but from talking to my friends from going through it myself the way that i've always seen it is everybody falls into that that dark place um where they don't they just can't find they don't know who they are anymore uh, because their whole life and ego and um, support system has been tied up in in a very public game uh, where you get a lot of adulation and things like that and so you go through this period um, where you're you know you're not even sure who your friends are anymore and you know whether the people in your life are there for the right reasons and all these sorts of things because you're always skeptical as a as an athlete and everybody goes down there and then it's just how do you get out and how quickly do you get out um, and you know for me I had something where I could pop out quickly um, and I had a support system I had a loving family I had a community that um, you know I was I actually always lived in Columbus when I played in the NFL and I commuted to Indianapolis um, but uh, but I, I kind of had that that support system in place so it was a little quicker for me but um, but some guys they fall and they stay down there and and it's it's kind of a rut but eventually the vast majority uh, kind of can pull themselves out um, and, and do that. And, you know, one thing, one change I would make um, if I could kind of wave my wand is in the NFL, you have what's called the rookie symposium uh, and all rookies go through it. And it's, it's kind of a week long um, how not to get arrested or in a, embarrass yourself. It's like college class. orientation. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, basic stuff, but important stuff, um, right? Because you're getting people from all, all, all different backgrounds. Um, and uh, I always thought there should be an exit symposium, which is kind of a, hey, now that you're out, you know, here are some programs that we can put you through another week, whatever it is, um, and help you kind of get back on your feet um, so that you can you can transition more smoothly. Hard part about that is uh, there's also, when you're in this period of uncertainty, there's also this, well, I don't know if I'm done yet, right? Somebody could call me tomorrow. And, and so, you know, it's how long do you kind of keep the hope alive and keep going? But, um, that's a long answer to your question, but I, I do think do a good job could always do better. If I could do anything, it would be a, an exit symposium of sorts. And you can always do better on health and welfare. Concussions have been the biggest thing there. Uh, what do you think the NFL should do to address the concussion issue? Yeah, I think um, they've made a lot of progress on it. Uh, when it first was happening, you know, I, I wasn't particularly pleased with the information that was coming out or not coming out um, on on that side. And uh, you know, we needed it. That's all. All we needed was was to understand what was happening um, because there were terrible things, right? There were suicides, less so anymore. But there was that summer where it was, felt like it was every two or three weeks. The summer that Junior Seau took his life. Um, and so you knew something was going on, but we couldn't get, get the information. Um, and so now I think it's, it's in a much better place. Again, I, I, you know, there's more you can do, but the reality is it's, it's a contact sport. It's a violent sport. Um, you're never going to legislate it out of the sport entirely. Um, the best thing you can do is in my opinion, is you can have very tight return to play guidelines. Um, because the, the research, at least when I was looking at it, the research shows that as long as you don't rush back and kind of hurry yourself back in onto the field, um, as long as you don't do that, you'll probably be okay. Uh, it's when guys 
get a concussion, they hide it, or they don't tell anybody, and they go back in and they get another one um, in quick succession, and those things can start piling on, and that's when the real problems uh, occur. So I think there's some return-to-play guideline stuff you could do. Another thing I would look at um, is I would space the games out. Instead of having them once a week, I'd have them every 10 days. Um, you could, you know, elongate the season. You'd have games probably on every day. They're basically doing that now. Mm. Um, and uh, it just would give guys just a little bit more time to recover from injury. Would you let your kids play football? I will, yeah. I mean, so I always say, I, you know, look at the coach, look at the league, look at the equipment, make sure that it's that those are all things that um, you feel comfortable with and, you know, that your kid's being taught the right techniques and, and those sorts of things. Um, I just had a son two months ago, so this... Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I can't wait to... Uh, I think he's going to be a lefty, by the way. I just got, I have this feeling, but um, he keeps grabbing his pacifier with his left hand. But It's always good to have a southpaw on the face. Yeah, right? that's what I said. If he wants to be a pitcher, I'm cool with that too. But um, but uh, but no, I, I think, uh, you know, as long as I, I'm comfortable with the techniques being taught, um, I'll be I'll be perfectly happy to, to put my kids in football. It's a great game. So politics and the NFL have really kind of collided over uh, really the past two years, uh, maybe a little more even, uh, with the anthem protests. And uh, I'm curious, what do you think of the protest as both the former NFL athlete and, you know, as a person running for Congress as a Republican? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, kind of where I've always been on on the anthem um, prior to this, and and I'll I'll always be there. So I, I was fortunate enough to play for one of the greatest people I know, which is uh, Jim Trestle. And he's phenomenal for a variety of reasons. One of them uh, is his commitment to the military and, and to the country and, um, you know, kind of patriotism in general. He, he always passed out this thing called the Winner's Manual every year. He wrote a book about it. A big anthology we used to go through in training camp of just different uh, philosophies and, and fundamentals and things like that. And the first section every year that we went through on day one was a section on the United States of America and the state of Ohio. Um, so, you know, the history and why it's important and, and what it represents and how fortunate we are to, to be a part of this country. Um, and as somebody who, you know, came here uh, as is here as a result of a father who had to escape an oppressive regime and, and do this, um, I've always just loved our country and, and appreciate it for, for all of its blessings. And one of the things that he did, now I played during the Iraq War and when we were st- started in Afghanistan, was if any active duty military was back in Columbus and wanted to go to a game. I mean, it was red carpet. He would, anything that they wanted, they'd be in the locker room, they'd be at practice, they'd break us down in our huddles, they'd be on the sideline, anything. Carte blanche, they could go anywhere in the stadium. He wanted them to have a great experience. And I'll never forget these stories. Um, And sometimes I get emotional on this, but you know, these people would come back and they would thank us um, because what they would say is, look, we're in, we're in hell. We're in the middle of a war. And the only connection I have to my hometown and to my state is the three hours that you guys play. And, you know, I'll go and I'll grab the other guys from Ohio. And if you're playing Wisconsin, we'll grab the guys from Wisconsin, the guys and gals from Wisconsin, and we'll go out and we'll find a radio or a TV. And for those three hours, none of this matters, and we're back home. And, you know, that stuck with me. And so when I heard the anthem every single time, um, that's who I thought about. And so that's why I believe that um, the appropriate thing to do is to stand and to honor the flag um, because of the sacrifices that have been paid. 
that doesn't mean that I don't understand that there are real issues in our society with respect to criminal justice and things like that. And I'll work on those things, right? Um, and I want to work on those things. But when it comes to the anthem, uh, I believe everybody should stand. get capital letter it's the must-have daily read for state house happenings five mornings a week cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct timely information it's perfect for people businesses and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers the governor and all of state government from breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda if you're not getting capital letter you're missing out for more information visit cleveland.com capital letter that's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So Anthony Gonzalez was a football player for a while for a university called Ohio State University. And then he went to California and worked in tech for a minute, right? Yep. And then he came back home and decided to run for political office. That's right. How did that happen? Like, why is he running for office right now? He went into that a lot in this next segment. And I, I think one of the more interesting kind of theme, thematic elements of this interview that we did with him is everybody sort of has this idea of who a football player is and what a football player is and how they think. And he, he really kind of breaks the mold on a lot of that. I mean, a lot of people might say, oh, he – and I, mean, I think, frankly, people have been critical of him for just trying to leverage his football career into a political re- career. But it seems like he's always been kind of um, you know deep in thought about a lot of issues. I mean, he's a philosophy major in college. So it sort of came about, I, th- I think, just kind of out of genuine curiosity and kind of this desire to – uh, uh, sort of move the world in a direction. Is yeah, for sort me, of what I got from him. Yeah, something that came through clearly for me was that he's somebody who kind of has a plan and then he executes the plan. So he mentioned earlier in the interview, like, I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. And he said, hey, that would still be a pretty cool job, I think, if I got that. Like, or no, he didn't put it that way. He said, he still thinks it would be the coolest job right. in the world. Yeah. And, and like, so it's, I hint, take that. Hint. To, right. So I take that thing like maybe he's going to want to be in the Supreme Court someday. But like he uh, so he sprinkled in the first segment, you know, he mentioned uh, I've always wanted to be a professional athlete. But then when we asked him about the, you know, why did you decide to run for office? He mentioned the Supreme Court thing again. And it is clear that he's also kind of always, you know, similar to his football career. I think it's something he's always envisioned himself doing. Is he an attorney? No. He is not. Oh, OK. Uh, one of the other things that I noticed is we talk with a lot of politicians and we talk with a variety of them and they do have a variety of, um, you know, takes on everything. One of the more interesting, I kind of half expected him to come in here and have just a very um, boilerplate sort of take on American politics today because he is running for office this first time. And he actually has a lot of sort of nuanced um uh, thoughts during this whole segment one could call him philosophical he's very philosophical i think he's uh he's probably using that degree with that let's uh go ahead and uh, listen to this segment of the interview with anthony gonzalez did you talk about politics a lot when you were you know in locker rooms and stuff like that you know nfl locker rooms and college locker rooms back then weren't uh, highly political um we we talked about a lot of things but typically we left that out um you know around election time i mean people would 
would talk a little bit, but um, but it wasn't a wasn't a hot topic. Hot topic around the dinner table, but but not in the locker room. Yep. So, do you think that athletes have maybe gotten more political today, or is it just getting more attention, or what's the? You know, I think it, probably right. Um, you know, if there's one thing, I think everybody can probably agree on. It's that um, you know the 2016 election forced a lot of people to pay attention in ways that maybe they hadn't before, um, and uh, and so I think I think our society in general. Um, is more aware of what's happening politically, and that's that's across the board. I don't think that's specific to athletes necessarily. Uh, so we've been just talking about you know football and your career as an athlete and stuff like that. Can you tell us about getting your MBA and kind of what you did before you decided to run for office? Yeah. So um, as I said earlier, I I went and during my third year of the NFL, kind of decided that this was a path I wanted to to go on, um, and then ultimately applied to Stanford um, and one other school primarily because one it was a great school but um two uh, the weather I, I wanted i'd lived in the midwest my whole life i wanted some sun for a couple of years um and uh and then also the focus on entrepreneurship uh, my father started a business that's kind of what i wanted to do i wanted to run businesses or wanted to run a business yeah, and you were there like during the whole like tech explosion thing yeah i mean it was 2012 to 14 um is when i was at stanford and, um, you know, it was a great experience. We had the class guests were phenomenal, right? You had Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, Mark Zuckerberg. These were people who would come to class and, um, you know, tell you about what they're doing. And you'd go through the case case study process with them in the room and things like that. And um, it was awesome. And it really, you know, for the first time, it was the first time where I had been exposed to a lot of international students in a, in a very intimate way, right? Um, you know, there's plenty of international students at Ohio State, but, but you know, you're a little isolated on the football team. And, and this, I think Stanford, it was like 45% of our class was international. So, um, you know, you kind of get that experience. It's the first time that I really traveled extensively um, to go to some of my classmates' home countries and hometowns and, and to see how they were raised and, and grow up and things like that. Um, and then, uh, obviously, most importantly, that's where I met my wife. Um, she did her undergrad there and was working at the Children's Hospital um, and was a friend of a friend of a friend. And, and so we got introduced that way. Um, but uh, it, great experience. You know, couldn't couldn't say anything bad about it. Um, really enjoyed it. And then ultimately I uh, got hooked up with uh, a venture capitalist who uh, was a Stanford grad. And he kind of introduced me to a company. Uh, it was two, two female entrepreneurs, uh, wonderful entrepreneurs, incredibly smart, great people. Um, who had started a an education technology company. Best way to describe it is DocuSign for public school districts. Public school districts have their own unique signature challenges because all their documents get routed throughout, you know, multiple buildings from parent to teacher, teacher to administrative building, and back and forth, and all these things. So we uh, automated all of that and put a bunch of data analytics on top of it. Um, great product, but anyway, um, I ran all the the business side of that. So. The two entrepreneurs were more or less product and engineering, and then I ran uh, kind of the commercial side and did that for, for two, two and a half years. Uh, again, great experience, built the business from, helped build the business from you know, very little. I think we had a, maybe three or four real clients <laughs> at, before I got there and you know 10,000 in revenue or something like that to a couple million in revenue, brought it to uh, 30 odd employees and um, got it to profitability. Uh, and so that was that was a good experience. That was a, a great experience, and um, was enjoying it. But ultimately, my wife and I 
knew we were going to start having kids and um, for a variety of reasons that just wasn't going to be the place for for us to do that and combined with that uh, my father's business was going through some transitions and so uh, we ultimately decided to to move back um, get closer to home uh, we as I mentioned we ended up having our first son just just a couple months ago boy am I glad that we are home um, because uh, you realize how much how much work I mean you love these kids to death but and they are a lot of work and it, it sure does help. Um, so, so glad that we made, we made that choice, um, for a variety of reasons, but, uh, but certainly, um, there's something special about, you know, raising your kid when his three cousins are just down the street and his aunts and uncles and my parents and my wife's parents are in Atlanta and they can come up. And so, um, it's just, uh, it's been, it's been awesome, uh, to, to be back and to, to start our family here. Yeah, free on demand babysitting basically. For, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and my mother loves it. So it, it, um, it's been awesome, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of that, that portion. But, um, again, it's, it was a, it was a wonderful couple of years, but, uh, but certainly pleased to be back. You come across as being very, uh, exacting and you seem like you're very determined kind of to accomplish the things that you, you set out to do. When did you decide that you want to run for office and did you always see yourself, you know, potentially being a, a politician at some point? So I did. I, I, I always say it's, for me, it was a when, not an if. The, the first book that I read when I was a kid was The History of the Supreme Court. My grandfather gave it to me, I think, when I was like six. Just light reading for a six-year-old. And, uh, <laughs> and so, and like I said, that, that's kind of the direction I, I wanted to go. And, and um, I talk about my family's background a lot for a variety of reasons, but mainly because it just informs most of the direction I've gone. So their history was they were working on behalf of a different organization during the Castro revolution. Castro took over and he ultimately, his group started executing dissidents. So he's rounding up followers. If you're with us, great, come on. If you're not, probably gonna execute. And there were, I mean, my, I had my grandmother write her, her memoirs before she passed. She talks about, you know, this friend who lived down the street who we, you know, so-and-so went to school with, killed. This friend, you know, all these, all these terrible things. And so they were always politically active. And, um, and then, you know, growing up, she always said, if you believe enough in something, you should fight for it and you should, you should go do it. And so, you know, I always knew that, that I wanted to serve in some capacity. Um, and again, it was a when, not if. And, and the when, uh, the reason why now I think is so important is because of how divided I think we are as a country. Um, this is the most divided we've been in my lifetime. This is the worst political environment I've ever seen. Um, we have, as a society, I feel like we've completely lost our ability to have civil and normal dialogue with one another. Uh, every single issue turns into a four alarm fire where we kind of accuse the other side of being evil, bad, and despicable. And, you know, it's, I think we've completely lost sense of the fact uh, that at the end of the day, what's most important is that the United States of America moves forward together. And so I, I've seen this divide. And by the way, that's happening across the world, right? We're seeing it in the U.S., but you're seeing all kinds of interesting and chaotic things happening in Europe, uh, China's going through some interesting transitions. Um, and so I saw what was happening in our country across the world. And I said, you know what, this is the perfect time. Um, if things were going great, if, if, if everybody was really excited about Congress, I probably wouldn't be interested right now. Um, but, uh, but the fact that it is so difficult and toxic, 
um, I think is, is a call to action for me. So why do you think things have gotten so toxic? I think, you know, th there are people much smarter than me and there, and there are books being written on, on why that is. Um, there's a lot of different things, right? There's no, I'll tell you what I don't think it is. Okay. Well, let's start with there. Uh, I, I don't think it's America specific because again, you can see it happening in other parts of, of the Western world. So I don't think it's America specific, but in our country, what I think it is, is a combination of a few things. One, the vast majority of our society has had stagnant wages since the seventies, haven't gotten a raise. Um, so there's that. There is this feeling when you look at the government that there are some people in the federal government that get to play by a completely different set of rules. They have a completely different outcome and the rest of us are forced to kind of take the system as it is, um, as opposed to what looks like some mystical environment where some people get to play by different rules. And, and then you see evidence of that bearing itself out. And so I think, you know, you see some economic disenfranchisement. Um, you see uh, a system that looks like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work the same way for everybody else or for everybody. And then I think social media is kind of a place where the loudest, angriest voice gets the most clicks. And in the, the kind of click for cash environment that we find ourselves in, you know, that, that kind of creates a tinderbox of sorts. Um, I mean, I, it's interesting to me that some of our best and brightest spend all day trying to figure out how to make people click things, right? Um, that's, that's what we do, right, Seth? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, seriously. Thank you for calling us the brightest. Though. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, but I mean, that's, that's ultimately, and hopefully you didn't take that as a shot against, against what you guys do or the media or anything. No, no. I, think it's, I think it's technology generally. Um, there was this thought that uh, in tech proliferation, um, and information sharing was all going to be net positive. And I think what we're seeing is that might not actually be the case. Um, and, and that um, it's having some, uh, some difficult uh, implications on our society. That's interesting you bring that up. Uh, you know, you spent some time in the Stanford Silicon, Silicon Valley area. Uh, I do remember it was a New York Times op-ed that said basically uh, Silicon Valley was the smartest group of people who had ever lived and they were essentially using that to, uh, you know, sell people on ads. Like they had all this technology and they could better the world, but they're selling ads with it. What, what do you think, I mean, I guess what's the remedy to the problems you just described? Well, a few things, but first the, you know, Silicon Valley has the smartest people. That's just foundationally not accurate in my, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, having spent a lot of time there, uh, or having spent time there, I, I just, I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, and, uh, but in any event, um, so I also don't think it matters, right? Like the way I always think of IQ is once you're over a bar, like you're fine, right? Like that extra IQ point isn't going to make that much of a difference. Sometimes it probably hurts you. Um, and so, uh, so that's, you know, kind of how I, how I would view that. But in terms of what the remedy is, I think the remedy quite frankly is one, it, we need a more transparent, an accountable government. Um, and that's a big part of why I'm running, uh, is to be a transparent and accountable representative. At the very least, I want people to know that they can access me, that they have, you know, they'll have visibility into my thinking. We can disagree for days and that's fine. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to at least know, know where I am. Um, so I think there's, there's an element on that for sure. 
so that people feel like they own their government again as opposed to the other way around. Totally agree with that. And it, you can, you know, everybody has tapped into that in one way or another uh, on the political spectrum. But then, in my opinion, we have to find a way, have to, and nothing has really worked, but we have to find a way to get wages to rise in this country. People have to see their paychecks growing in the economy. Everybody needs to be able to participate. And the reality is, and I, if, if there's one frustration I have with our, the Republican Party, it's I don't know that we talk enough about this and we kind of let the left own this a little bit, but um, we have to find a way for everyone to rise. Uh, when capital holders, and I want capital holders to be fabulously successful, but I want everybody to be successful. And the reality is in our system, capital holders have benefited tremendously over the last however many decades, uh, and uh, really since the 70s. And again, workers have seen their wages kind of flatline. And so if you don't have capital, this has been a very, very difficult country. So running for office is kind of weird. It's just, I've never done it, but my observation is that would be kind of a strange experience for somebody who's just completely coming at it fresh. So you're, you're coming at it fresh. I guess I framed it as being weird. So maybe that's not right, but what's it like? Okay. (laughs) No, you got it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, look, it's difficult. It's, it can be frustrating. Um, and I'm just a candidate, right? But again, I go back to, if you believe in, if you believe in the mission enough, um, and you believe in the country and you believe in kind of the founding ideals that have made our, our country the most successful experiment in human history, then it's worth it. And, and it's worth it if you get the results. Um, but you know, again, I'm somebody who I just, just the way that I process things, I'm not somebody who wants to sit around and complain all day. That's just not who I am. Um, I'm somebody who wants to, who sees problems and thinks, okay, I'm going to go try to fix this. And that's kind of what, what brought me into, into politics. Um, but at the same time, I will say this, uh, there are elements, uh, and I would say the day-to-day of the campaigning is incredibly exciting and, and hopeful in, in many ways. Um, so despite, you know, what I said earlier about divides and division and, and whatnot, um, when you have conversations with people one-on-one um, or in small groups, uh, what you realize is, is what I knew when I got into this, um, or what I thought I knew when I got into this, but has, what has been confirmed uh, which is that we are so much more similar and we have so much more in common than we have that divides us. And for whatever reason, we're spending a whole lot of time focusing on those those parts that divide us. Um, but people genuinely love the country. They love the people of the country and they want everybody to be successful and prosperous. It's just, it's just not happening. And I think that's what, that's what keeps us on these poles fighting so hard. Do you think as a former football player, do you think that your background helps you as a candidate like in, this, in the sense that you have celebrity and notoriety and that kind of thing? Or does it hurt you or maybe people don't take you seriously because they think you're just somebody who you know, ran a ball around for a living and that kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know, to be honest. I don't think that way. I just just not how I, I live my life. I like to think that when I get in a room with somebody and I sit down and talk with them, uh, again, we may disagree forever. That's fine. Um, but hopefully we walk away respecting each other and, and celebrating the things that we have in common. That is what you do in sports, right? Sports is inherently a unifying event. You come together, people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, to chase common goals and outcomes. Uh, and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and that's why I love it. Politics, by its nature, is divisive. It's about power and fighting for the things uh, that your side wants most. And so it has a divisive nature. That's its nature. That's fine. It's combative. 
no problems there. Um, but again, sports is, is more unifying. And I think um, bringing that attitude uh, to the political arena, quite frankly, I think most people will find it to be a, fresh, a breath of fresh air. I, I don't know that I've met anybody um, or I'm certain I haven't met anybody that has said, boy, what I want is more people screaming at each other and more people uh, dividing us and, and yelling and, and doing all these crazy things um, that you see on, you know, I feel like every time I, I turn on CNN or Fox, it's just one more congressperson doing that. Um, and so uh, I, I think that um, that the country and that Northeast Ohio is, is looking for a, a different type of representative, and I hope that I represent that. So your, your primary opponent, who's the state representative, Christina Hagan, one of her and her people's sort of criticisms of you were that you received the endorsement from some of like the key players in the district. And so there's, I guess, they would argue that you were sort of anointed despite running for office for the first time. Do you feel like you, you know, kind of eased into it or what's your, what was your experience of that? I don't think so. I mean, I, so when I got into this race, everybody was telling me not to get in uh, because I was probably going to lose and I was crazy and all that good stuff. Right. And I'm too hard headed or stubborn to, to pay much attention to that. And so look, I, I approached this the same way that I've approached every competitive environment that I've ever been in, which is you build the best team, you find the best people, you bring them into the fold. Um, you set your plan. If you have good people, they're going to help you define the right plan. Uh, and then you and then you go and you work and, and, and you, you execute your plan. Um, and that's ultimately what we did. So, um, you know, the endorsements that that we received, I was incredibly proud to uh, to get. And um, I, I believe those were earned. Those were sitting down with local elected officials, sitting down with uh, the veterans at the VFW in, in Strongville and North Olmstead and, um, and and talking to different people and, and just outworking everybody. That's the one thing. Um, that I've always said, you know, our team won't be outworked. That just won't happen. It, uh, it's the only way I know how to do anything. So Seth mentioned like the negative stereotype of the college philosophy major. So like one of the aspects of that stereotype isn't necessarily like somebody's politically conservative. How did your political <laughs> philosophy I kind of developed into who you are today? You know, I, I had a professor, my favorite professor at Ohio State. They, they tell the professors when they have an athlete in the class because our counselors have to work with them to make sure that they're able to monitor the grades and whatnot. And um, he said, uh, a football player, he said, hmm, I never realized I had a stereotype against football players until, until you got here. And he was, was kind of joking. And I said, well, what are your stereotypes against conservatives? And um, he said, are you one of those two? I said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay. He said, well, we'll have a fun time. And, and we, ended up, we ended up doing that. It was a political philosophy class. It was the best class I took. Um, I, I loved it, and he and I had great debates. Um, what I always say is I, I entered what was a, uh, might have been the, the furthest left department at Ohio State. And, you know, this is why I enjoyed college. You get in there, you bring the ideas that you were raised on, and you put them through the fire. Um, and you test them, and, and you walk through them, and you try to, to make sure that, um, that they're right. And then I came out conservative. Um, and, and similarly in uh, my time in California, right? You go in, it's San Francisco's probably the most liberal city in the country, but, uh, but ultimately um, didn't really change who I am just because I believe at a fundamental level that the American experiment is best lived in a bottoms up format. Um, and, uh, and that has always been kind of the Tocquevillian sense of America has always been what I believe in, in, in the Republican party and conservative thinking reflects that view. Um, and so the, nothing has, has really changed uh, for me in that regard. 
but I like to think that my positions have matured and are, are, are more battle-tested, I guess I would say, from having lived in those environments. to say that Anthony Gonzalez is a political newcomer. What did you guys glean about his political philosophy, like sort of where he stands on on the issues? I think he's kind of a classic conservative. Um, He used the phrase, like, I believe in government from the bottom up. He dropped Alexander de Tocqueville, is that his name? Yes, he did drop Tocqueville. So, um, you know, so that's kind of like the base of it. I I think something else too that sort of has informed him is that his family runs like this manufacturing company that processes steel and aluminum products into other types of, you know, uh, manufacturing type applications. And so I think the stuff about trade and tariffs and all that stuff really is something that obviously directly affects him and it's something to be thought about. So I I think like kind of going out from there, I mean, you know, like we we talked about the uh, national anthem and he talked about how great the military is and stuff. So I, I think it kind of pieces together like a pretty you know, traditional sort of conservative sort of general framework. We sort of talked offline about it, and I, I guess a good way to describe him is probably kind of an Eisenhower Republican, which I think is how you're kind of describing him, sort of that the the classic conservative, not quite the, like, Teddy Roosevelt and not quite the neocon sort of, you know, George W. Bush model or anything like that. And I, I don't think he quite fits in with necessarily, like, the whole populist kind of movement within the Republican Party now either. So He did talk about workers, though, and I think that's one of the things that's reshaping the Republican Party today. And, you know, who knows how long that's going to last when Donald Trump's presidency ends. But, you know, I mean, I think, like, the obvious thing, the biggest thing that separates him from Trump is that he's just soft-spoken, you know, thoughtful. I mean, it's just stylistic kind of stuff. So He, he doesn't seem too moved by necessarily, uh, like, nationalism either, kind of that, uh, you know, mentality. Yeah. Did you guys touch on the kids in Texas, the migrant children at all? We did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, you might think that he, as somebody who descended from immigrants, would be kind of more sympathetic to kind of what they're going through. And I'm sure that's true, you know, but also um, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that he, uh, on the other hand, there's sort of a competing thought where he has kind of experiences, his family has experiences with the system that inform his viewpoints. So I think that he kind of laid that out. With that, let's listen to the rest of the interview with Anthony Gonzalez. So how would you describe yourself politically? Uh, As a conservative Republican, I mean, I, I don't... And then there's a lot of labels being thrown around. I don't know how to do that. That's not, <laughs> it's not really for me to assess, but uh, I know I'm conservative and, and uh, always have been and um, have, have been a lifelong Republican. So, uh, Where do you agree with, you know, President Trump? He, uh, you know, you're on this podcast, you're very, you don't sound as boisterous as say the president or anything like that. And I'm just kind of wondering where do you two align and where do you two disagree? On the policies we align on the, on the vast majority of, topics, right? I mean, that's why it's it's not difficult for me to run in this environment because I always focus on the policy. I think politics should be about policy. Um, and, and that's where it's, you know, that's the arena for politics is let's, let's take the ideas that are best for the country, let's put them on the table and let's fight on them on the merits. Um, and that's ultimately what I got into this for. And, and with respect to the policies, um, I've always said this, I think the president's policies with respect to their impact on Northeast Ohio specifically um, are incredibly beneficial. Uh, And so 
Um, so I support the vast majority of them. Um, it's hard for me to pick one out that I don't support, to be honest. You're right. We have a completely different personality and that's fine. There's only one President Trump. And, uh, you know, that's it's just a stylistic difference for sure. But um, but when it comes to the actual policies and the merits, um, we're we're pretty locked up. You mentioned just your concerns about like the the tone and division and that kind of thing in the country. And that's, you know, generally political observers point to President Trump playing on that stuff in a way that is recognizing it and sort of, you know, to some degree exploiting it. So do you do you feel like the way that he operates as a political actor is how, how do you feel it contributes to just sort of the climate? I think he operates probably the same way he operated in business. Um, I don't, you know, this is this is a public version of that, right? Like if, but if you read the the chronicles, I mean, look, he's a tough competitor. He fights hard, and uh, and this is kind of a the style that has always worked for him. I don't I don't think that it's changed much. But again, I I'll go back to something I said earlier. I I don't think we are divided as a country because of President Trump. I really don't. Um, I think we are divided as a society for systemic issues that have been plaguing our society for a long time and both parties have pulled on those strings in different ways and now it's all kind of bubbling up it's bubbling up here but it's bubbling up across the entire western world and i don't think that's a coincidence um and and uh you know obviously certainly the president had nothing to do with brexit uh, as an example um or he very, or very, or very saying that, you <laughs> did know. predict it um <laughs> which might tell you something uh, about what how how aware he has been about um about what's going on in our world and so you know i i just think across the western world uh, you're seeing a lot of the same issues play out um and they're just being ignited in different ways one of the things that's kind of developed in american politics is that everything is defined like whether by how pro trump you are or how anti trump you are so you're out running in the district and you ran the primary too so you were talking to a different slice of voters but how much do you think that matters to sort of to people in general that, that in your experiences i think people ultimately judge politicians on the po- in, in northeast ohio not everywhere but in northeast ohio i think that people ultimately judge politicians based on the policies they're advocating more so than anything else. Um, I, I sincerely believe that. And I think that's, and by the way, I think it's also our number one issue is always jobs in the economy. Um, and again, when you talk about the president and the policies that he's advocating for, I think at the end of the day, they are fantastic for Northeast Ohio. And, you know, I was thinking about this and you guys would know this better than me. He's been to Northeast Ohio or the state of Ohio four or five times uh, since since the election ended. That's the most I can remember a president ever being here in his his first year of office. Um, and so I think that's not an accident. Uh, I think he's he is focused on our part of the country. Um, he was in Minnesota last night uh, for very specific reasons, and I think it's because he's identified this. Hey, look, wages have wages have flatlined. Factories have shut down, jobs have shipped overseas, and you know we can talk about free trade, unfettered free trade, and yeah, that's wonderful. Econo- you know, you, it's, you can do the math, and yeah, that all makes sense. Uh, lower cost goods, I got it. But if 20,000 people are unemployed in that town, a cheaper TV isn't really gonna do that much. Um, and so he has put his arms around these issues um, and I'm a free trader, but a, a fair, a free and fair trader um, in a way that benefits the entire country. And again, not just those who have the ability to exploit the um, the labor arbitrages that exist across the world. And so he 
I think, um, this is a long answer to your question, but again, I think this is what resonates, these issues, these economic issues, and national security issues as well, but these issues are, are what are resonating um, in, the, in Northeast Ohio and in the 16th District, and, and that is why I support uh, the president. It's because of the issues, um, and, and that's how I always evaluate any politician. You mentioned being a free and fair trader. I'm interested, what do you think of the uh, tariffs that are being put in place? You know, I think the idea of rebalancing the trade um, is absolutely the right idea. I see it as, not to get too much into the weeds from an economic standpoint, but I see it as more of a capital flow issue as opposed to a goods flow issue. And so quickly to kind of make that case, I guess. Um, So the trade account... This will be so boring for your listeners, so I apologize. No, they, they, get, they love trade. I mean, they're like football, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Like, I mean, trade. Yeah. Uh, Come so, for the NFL talk, stay for the uh, if, dissection of trade policy. Right. So. Um, and, and I'm a newbie on this one a little bit. But um, so the trade account uh, is, you know, we have a huge trade deficit, right? By definition, that means we have a capital surplus. Um, that's just definitionally the case. You can look that up in any economics textbook, okay? For most of human history. People have believed that it's the trade, the imbalance in trade, that dictates the capital flow. I believe that it's the capital flow that dictates the trade in this instance. And the reason is, and the way I I come to that conclusion, is we have completely unfettered, unobstructed capital, deep and variant capital markets in the United States. And so anybody from any country pretty much um, can invest in, in, in the United States which means because those two accounts have to balance that as long as there's a bunch of capital coming in, there has to be an equivalent trade deficit has to be just, that's the law the economic law. Okay. And so in that world, I would be more interested in talking about capital flows because I think if you find a way to methodically and intelligently change the capital flows, you will address the trade deficit. A tariff is another way of doing it, um, and and I and again, it's I think we might be splitting hairs here, because at the end of the day, what I do support is the idea of rebalancing the trade equation. It's it, and so that's you know one mechanism, but for me, um, I think we should we should have a conversation about capital flows. That's something I would like to, and I'm going to try to make it a part of of kind of the message that we're pushing going forward. So a lot of these tariffs have focused on steel and aluminum, which are the kinds of products that your family's company, you know, is, deals in. Uh, mm-hmm. Has it been tough for them to stay in business, you know, throughout this climate? Is, how, did, how are the tariffs going to affect them? I mean, what's kind of like the curve of that over time? For our business personally, um, it's, you know, it's hard to say. I know we have a lot of clients in Canada, um, and so, you know, it will affect those relationships. Um, I know that, you know, in monitoring those discussions, you know, we're, we're all taking a wait and see approach. Um, I think most people agree that we are probably in the middle of a negotiation. We are certainly not at the end of it. And so, you know, that's kind of how everybody in, in, in my world, my steel world, uh, is sort of evaluating it. Um, I'm just always interested in there's sort of like this, uh, there's a philosophy of, of, you know, you're talking about trade imbalances, but there's also the practicality of, you know, uh, I'm a soybean farmer, so- soybean tariffs on me would be bad. And so, you know, I guess it's, you know, it's, that's a, that's a conflict, I guess. No, absolutely. And again, I, I think, um, I do, th- I sincerely believe we are in the middle of a negotiation. I don't think, I, I don't think we are anywhere close to the end. 
um, and ultimately what will determine whether we get to a good place, um, again, in my opinion, is um, what's happening on the capital side um, and, and then the subsequent give and take on the trade side. I thought you'd have a unique perspective on the other issue that's kind of been in the news recently, and that is the migrant families and the separation and, uh, you know, not allowing people to come in who are seeking asylum, that sort of thing. Um, you know, your family fled the Castro regime to America seeking mm-hmm. asylum. Uh, so what do you think of these families who are, you know, coming here, not necessarily to escape uh, government, but to escape, you know, gang violence, which I guess could, you could say it's trying to escape the government if the government is it's become kind of a... Uh, failed state or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But, you know, they're being denied entry or they're being separated or anything like that. Uh, What do you make of that? Well, I'll kind of, I'll tell you my family's story in a little bit more detail because it it informs how I approach this issue. So as I said earlier, my family was living in Cuba. Their home was shot up the night before they ultimately decided that they couldn't stay there anymore. Uh, My, my aunt's bedroom um, was, was hit. And, uh, and so my, my grandparents knew they had to get their kids out. Uh, they were not going to stay in Cuba. They couldn't stay in Cuba. They all would, they all would have been killed. And so they went to Havana. They didn't live in Havana. They went to Havana and they waited for weeks to get a visa because they wanted to do it legally. They could have done it illegally, um, but they wanted their first experience in the country to be one of going through the process correctly. And so every single day they went to the office and every single day uh, they were buying new plane tickets in hopes that this would be the day that the visa came in. Uh, finally, one day it does come in. They board the plane with about $50. Um, and you know, the, one of the final flights out from Havana to Miami. And so that was, that was my family situation. Uh, it was as terrible and dark as you could ever imagine, uh, in Cuba. Um, but they wanted to make sure that, that when they came here, they did it the right way. Um, and that's how I think everybody should do it. Um, I didn't know this, but the other day my dad said he was separated for a period of time. I had no idea um, from his parents. I didn't know that. But um, but in any event, that's that's ultimately what I believe. Um, at the same time, uh, I think we should prioritize keeping families together when you know we have the situation that we did at the border. So I was happy to see what the president did. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we all know this. I hope we all know this. Um, the legislation is still flawed deeply. Uh, and still creates a scenario where you're really choosing between two bad outcomes. You're choosing between a catch and release system and a, and a keep the families together system or a splitting the people apart system. And neither of those are desirable outcomes for our country or for those families. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think it is on Congress, the onus is on Congress to actually get a bill passed. Um, most people are pessimistic they'll be able to do that, which is really sad. Uh, considering that um, this is incredibly important and there, there really is, are massive issues in our immigration system today. But, uh, but ultimately, I, I do believe everybody should come in legally, uh, and I, I do believe that we should be keeping families together uh, when they are legitimate families, obviously. Because there's also, I think, you know, there's, there's also abuse happening, right, where there's human traffickers who are kidnapping kids and walking through the border and pretending that they're a member of a family and whatnot, and also that they can... Uh, continue to do all kinds of bad things. And so when you have that scenario, uh, again, the, the laws that are in place um, allow for some really terrible, terrible things to happen uh, to our country and, and to the families that are trying to do this. And so let's change the law. Let's get to something that makes sense that we most Americans probably agree on. 
um, and uh, and then let's have people go through the process legally. Uh, what do you think about the Russia investigation? In what in what way, I guess? It's obviously there's there's nothing really been in the news lately, but it's something that's proceeded over time, and obviously um, it's something that is people are following and I guess like the ultimate stakes of whatever may come from that is that maybe the house could be considering like an impeachment vote or something so I'm not here to talk about impeachment but more so I wanted to ask you you know do you how do you think about its proceeding do you think it's been a fair process do you think it raises questions you know that concern you yeah I mean I'll kind of say here see how many truths I can get to but three that come to mind right three things I believe about the Russia investigation number one I, nobody has found any collusion uh, that has been investigating this. Um, so I, I, I don't believe there is any. I really don't. I mean, at this point, I'm sure it would have come out. Um, but uh, I, so truth number one, in my opinion, no collusion. Truth number two, Russia did try to influence our election. Uh, they attempted to do it. Um, I think that's universally accepted. Uh, we should take steps to make sure that they can't do that going forward. So no collusion. Russia did try to influence the election. Uh, and the third thing I believe is that there was a tremendous bias uh, in the FBI and, and uh, the DOJ um, and, and a lot of other organizations uh, with respect to how they're treating the president. I mean, I, I thought, honestly, those texts from Strozik, is that his name? Strozik? Struck. Struck. Peter Struck. Um, I mean, those are disgusting. Like, how do, you, how do you defend those? I mean, that's somebody working in the FBI on these investigations who is saying that he's committed to stopping basically the outcome of an election. I, I can think of no greater abuse of power. And that, that gets into, again, a, an accountable, transparent government. I mean, what on earth is that? What are you saying to the millions of people uh, who freely and fairly made their choice in that election? Um, if you're going to say, no, I'm going to unilaterally abuse my power and try to put a stop to this somehow disgusting. I mean, I, I personally think uh, he should go to prison for that. Um, I mean, that's, that's insane. Uh, and, you know, I will say this, knowing how deeply uh, the, call it the liberal elite, hates this president and viciously hates him, uh, none of it surprises me, unfortunately. Um, I'm, not, I'm not surprised in the least uh, that that's happened. And and it's disgraceful. It really is. And so those are those are kind of my three truths. I don't believe there's collusion. I do think Russia tried to meddle, and we need to do everything we can to stop it and protect, prevent them from from doing that again. So we should probably talk about Facebook. And then the other piece um, is I think the abuse of power uh, and the bias is is really really troubling. It should trouble any American that 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 could go on. I understand that uh, the left hates. The president right now i get that but the situation could be on the other foot someday you want to make sure that that never ever happens ever so just to clarify you think the investigation has been biased i think what was ha i think the whole thing was biased yes um now the current investigation with what mueller's doing honestly i don't know i don't i think he is staying so quiet um that uh that it's it's impossible to know i think he's he's probably doing a good job i i am um, i support him completing his investigation I would like to see a terminal date. I don't want this to go on forever. I would like, uh, personally, if I could you know, make one, I said this in a Canton Repository interview. To me, if, if I would make one change, it would be, let's tighten the scope and make sure we're just looking at what we were originally supposed to look at, which is Russian, I think it was Russian meddling in the election. Let's stay there. 
and then let's put a timeline on it uh, so that again we're we can we can move on if this were a business project that's what you would do special project hey I need you to go look at this thing. Here's what you're looking at. Here are your resources. Here's the timeline. Come report back to me. Let me know what you what you found. Um, and that's ultimately what I the changes I would make. But I, I I don't have any problems with what he's personally doing. I think just like one last serious question. Um, how, how do you feel about like uh, people like to sit back and handicap elections? It's like what we do around here, especially during the summer. Um, how, how do you feel as far as like whether the political climate's beneficial for Republicans right now in Ohio? I'll let you do that. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I don't, I, I, not something I spend a bit of my time thinking about. It really isn't. I, one, don't have time for it to, to sit and do that. Um, but, uh, with a new baby and, um, we just bought a house. Uh, so, you know, getting that ready and, and, uh, and then campaigning on top of that. Um, not something I spend much time on, um, but uh, I will say this. I feel like the reception for our campaign has been great. I haven't run into anything, whether we're talking to Republicans or Democrats, uh, that tells me that um, the message is deeply flawed and needs adjusting and, or anything like that. But um, that's that's the only thing I'm kind of looking at. So we like to end on kind of a lighter note. Uh, we've talked about some heavy things here today. You said you don't want to handicap the election, but I do want you to handicap something for me. I want to know how many wins the Browns are going to have next year. Oh, my gosh. You have just. <laughs> <laughs> so I am the world's worst at this. I told us, I told Tim, my campaign manager, walking into the Steelers game last year, game one, we were going eight and eight. And I believe was, I actually got here about a year ago, and I told Andrew, "I'm like, hey, you know, I think they could win, you know, five or six games." And that's, that's excuses that he was new to town, yeah. so like he didn't, <laughs> yeah. he didn't your, know how mine. things work <laughs> yeah. around here. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm I'm the eternal optimist. I uh, I just until it goes south, then I become you know the angry bitter fan. But um, but no, I it's hard to say. I mean, I like I like what we've done at the quarterback position. That's by far the most important position in in pro football. Um, I think Tyrod Taylor's solid. I think Baker. I hope Baker will be be the player that that they they want him to be. But uh, even if he's not, I think Tyrod Taylor's good. Upgrades across the board, in my eyes. Gosh, I'll stick with last year's prediction. No, it, actually, they have a really tough schedule. They have a really tough schedule, especially at the beginning. So I don't know. We'll say seven. We'll put the over under at seven. Over under at seven. Yeah. All right. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was fun.